For the last several meetings, we had been looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, where Paul has been encouraging the church uh, to pray. Paul has been um, encouraging the church to be devoted in prayer. Paul has been giving the church his prayer requests, uh, where he's encouraging the church to pray for the advancement of the gospel. And we ask this question, how does Paul get to this point? Uh, because Paul, prior to, you know, to, to praying for the church and being an apostle and all this, Paul, prior to that, uh, was actually the biggest persecutor of the church. Uh, he's not praying for the advancement of the gospel. He is not hoping that you know, the name of Christ is going to be known. He is the biggest persecutor of the church. He's the biggest persecutor of the gospel. Uh, in the book of Acts, Paul says of himself, I was convinced that I ought to oppose the name of Jesus, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to, that, to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went to each synagogue to have them punished, and I tried to even force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So this was Paul. This is what he was doing prior to the church. Um, he is persecuting the church, and he admitted it himself. And yet once Paul came to know the Lord, once Paul has this vision of the Lord, he, he's growing in his relationship with the Lord, once Paul begins to see the Lord for who he really is, uh, Paul is then traveling all over the ancient Near East not to persecute the church, uh, but to preach. Right? He's no longer throwing Christians in jail, but he himself is in jail. Remember, he's writing this letter to the Colossians from, from jail, uh, and he's imprisoned because of his faith. Uh, he's no longer approving of and overseeing the killing of Christians, uh, but actually Paul eventually would be martyred for his faith. He himself would be killed for his faith. And so what, what changed Paul? How, how does Paul have this complete 180? You know, once he begins to see the Lord for who he really is, once he begins to, to know the Lord for who he really is, his heart completely changes. And we said along with this right view of God, along with you know, seeing the Lord rightly, something filled Paul to cause him to be able to say things, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. While Paul was being shipwrecked, while Paul was being beaten, while Paul was being persecuted, while Paul was imprisoned, all these things, Paul was still able to encourage others to rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. What is it that so filled him? It was joy. It was the joy of the Lord. When he began to see the Lord for who he really was, something filled him that allowed him, that, that sustained him, that, that encouraged him, it was the joy of the Lord. And so we said uh, this joy, there were two things that we talked about when we were looking at this joy of the Lord. Uh, when thinking of the joy of the Lord, we asked, what is it? Uh, and we asked, how can we get it? So what is it? We just simply said it is something that God has and it is something that God gives to make it easy. This joy is something that God has and it is something that God gives. Well, we read John chapter 15 verses 9 through 11. This is uh, Jesus teaching his disciples just hours before he's about to be crucified, where he's going to go on trial, be crucified, and where he's eventually going to die. And in his final moments with his disciples, what he's talking about, you know, when he's about to experience cosmic suffering, when he's about to take on all the suffering of the world, you know, for the sin of the world, here he is talking about joy. This is one of the final things that he's speaking with. And so Jesus, when he's talking about joy to the disciples, right before he's about to suffer for all of our sins, he begins to talk about this love that exists between the Father. He says, the Father has loved me, and I love the Father. When Jesus was, was uh, being baptized, there was uh, this message that comes from the Father, right? The, the, the heavens open, and the Father speaks to everyone that's there, and he says, this is my Son, whom I love, in him I'm well pleased. Right? The Father is pleased with the Son. The Father finds delight. The Father finds joy in the Son. 
And in the same way, the Son finds delight, finds joy, finds love in the Father. And we know that Jesus loves the Father because Jesus obeyed the Father. We talked about how love and obedience go hand in hand with one another, that they're not separate from each other, biblically speaking. When Jesus says, what is the fulfillment of the law? How can you summarize all of the law? Obedience. How can you, how can you obey all of the law? Love. Love. He says the two most important commands is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. So to love God perfectly means to obey God perfectly. To obey God perfectly means to love God perfectly. And did Jesus obey God perfectly? Yes. Therefore, Jesus must have loved the Father perfectly. So there is this eternal love, this love that has existed before time itself, that has, that has been there between the Father and the Son. And in that love, that loving relationship, there is this eternal delight, this eternal joy that exists between them. When the Father thinks of the Son, delight. When the Son thinks of the Father, delight, joy. And Jesus says, this joy that God has, this joy that I have, is not only something that God has, but something that God gives. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 11, he says, I'm giving you all this information so that the joy that is in me, the joy that I have, may be in you, and so that your joy would be complete. So the joy of the Lord is something that not only God has, but it is something that God gives. So if that's true, then number two, how do we get it? Right? If there's this eternal joy that exists within God, and God is now telling us it is not just a joy that I have, but it is a joy that you can now have, that's a good question to ask. How then can we, can we get it? And what we said was, uh, just as Jesus was preaching prior to those verses, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Remain in me, remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. Know the Lord. Spend time with him in the word. Spend time with him in prayer. Stay connected with him. Jesus is saying, apart from me, there is no life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you will not bear fruit. Apart from me, you will not have joy. True joy. This eternal joy. That joy that is not based off of, off of circumstances, not based off of, oh, well, today was good, therefore I have joy. No, a joy that is based off of the love of God. Jesus says, if you want that joy, abide in me. If you want a joy that, that, that Paul had, that was able to sustain him through all trials, through all of everything that he was going through when he was, again, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was abandoned, he was imprisoned, he was all these things, and yet he's still able to rejoice in the Lord always. How is that? The joy of the Lord. He abided in the Lord. He remained in the Lord. He grew in his relationship in the Lord through the word and through prayer. We said, if, if we were to show someone you know, the two, three, four, five people that you spend the most amount of time with will be able to see you. Show us who you spend the most time with and we'll be able to see who you are. Because those that you spend the most time with are the ones that you influence and the ones that, that influence you. So then if that's true, then what would it look like if Christ happened to be this person that you spent the most amount of time with? If Christ was one of your closest friends, if not your closest friend. If Christ was the one that you went first to. The more time you spend with him, the more time you're going to look like him, sound like him, move like him, the more, time you're going to, or the more you're going to have this joy like him. And so Jesus says, abide in me, abide in me, remain in me, connect to me, stake, dwell in me as I dwell in you. Because when you do, this joy that God gives, or this joy that God has, is something that he gives. 
Jesus, that's exactly what he says in verse 11. He says, I'm giving you all this information. I want you to abide in me. I want you to, to, to obey me. I want you to follow me. I want you to remain in me. I'm giving you all this information because the joy that I have is something that I want to give to you and so that your joy would become complete. And that's exactly what, uh, what Paul had and that's exactly what we can have in increasing measure until we have it in full when we see him face to face. So, that's what we covered last week, or last, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, today, we're finally moving off of verses 2 through 4. Uh, we are going into uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and it says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Read that again. Uh, be wise, or some of your translations might say, walk in wisdom in the way that you act towards outsiders or in the way that you act towards those who are without, meaning non-believers, people who, are not, uh, people who don't have a relationship with Christ. It says, make the most of every opportunity or redeem the time. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. All right. So, real quick recap of what we've been going through, you know, throughout our entire study of Colossians, right? Remember the four themes that we've been talking about again and again and again and again. Right? Number one, who is God? Uh, number two, major theme, uh, who is the church? What is God's view of the church? How does God view you individually? How does God view us corporately together as the body? Number three, what is this gospel message that saves us and satisfies us? And then finally, number four, uh, in light of those first three, in light of who is God, in light of who is the church, in light of God's uh, gospel message that saves and satisfied us, satisfies us, what is our proper response? What is the proper response to those three things? What is life in Christ now look like in light of who God is, his gospel message, uh, and his view of the church? Right. We've been saying that our proper response you know, to those first three themes, we've been saying that this life in Christ uh, is not just limited to a part of our lives. That the, the, there's, there's no part of our life that the gospel message doesn't touch. There's no part of our life that the gospel message doesn't affect. If you think about it, if, if someone is married, and let's say spouse, you know, the, the husband is, is you know, at work over here and wife is at work over here, just because they're not together physically, does that mean they're no longer married? No, of course not. That, that, that makes no sense. That, that, would never be, that would never be the case. So if that's true, then is it true that even though that physically they may be apart, the way that they live is still going to be affected by this relationship. Here's an example. Right? Uh, just because physically you're not together, you're not all of a sudden living as if you were single. You might, but you're not physically together. It doesn't matter. The relationship is still there. But just because, right, does that make sense? That there's no part uh, or there's no time uh, which that you would begin to live in a way that doesn't reflect this relationship that you're in, whether you're physically together or not. How much more so is that true with the gospel? It doesn't matter if we're at church or it doesn't matter, okay, well, like, I'm only in a relationship with God when I'm at home or I'm only in a relationship with God when I'm at church. I'm only in a relationship with, with God when I'm in prayer. I'm only in a relationship, you know, there's no, that, that's no, there's no such thing as that. Whether I'm at work, whether I'm at school, whether I'm at home, whether I, it doesn't matter where I am, I'm still in this relationship. Therefore, my life needs to reflect that. And that's what we've been talking about, actually, throughout our, our, our study of Colossians, right? 
Uh, we've talked about what does life look like you know, within the church and with fellow believers. Paul says in chapter 3, verse um, 13, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. Right? This is what life looks like within the body. Forgiveness, love, unity. These kinds of things. Now, because of who God is, because of his gospel message, because of his view of the church, that needs to reflect now within the body of Christ. We've looked at life at home. Paul says in, in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, we talked about that, and we also looked at Ephesians 5, husbands and wives. What does now life look like? What does life in Christ look like in a married couple, in a marriage? We looked at the story of Hosea. What does life look like in, in, the, uh, uh, in the context of a marriage? We looked at parents and children. Now that we know Christ, what does a relationship look like with our parents? What does, as parents, what does our relationship look like with, with children? We looked at work. Now that we know God, now that you know, uh, we, we know his view and we're growing in his view of how he sees us, we're growing in our knowledge of his gospel message, what does work look like? Remember when God was creating, when he brought order out of chaos, and when we go to work and we begin to bring order into, you know, out of chaos, we're mimicking our Father. So every part of our life is being affected by the gospel. There's no part of our life that is being untouched, that is, that is to be left untouched by this gospel message. So then what does life look like with unbelievers, with people who don't know Christ? This is what Paul is beginning to touch on now. There's no part of our life that is untouched by the gospel. Every part of our life has to be affected by it. It's all or nothing. And when we, when we think about that, okay, what does life look like with unbelievers? Sometimes we hear the Bible say, or we might hear it say in church, said in church, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, or bad company uh, corrupts good character. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So we hear that. And so we, when we hear things like that, we might think, okay, well, done. I'm, if, if you don't know Christ, if you don't believe in Christ, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to sit with you. I'm not going to walk with you. I'm not going to fellowship with you. I'm, I'm going to completely avoid you, so on and so forth. We might take that view. And yet, at the same time, we know that it was said of Christ you know, he was a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he fellowshiped with them. And it's true, he did. So then which is it? Which is true? Which is correct? Is one right and one is wrong? Or, or you know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do life with, with those who are around us who may not believe in Christ? We do have to be careful, right? We do have to... Uh, uh, it is true that, you know, in many of our relationships, we're not just influencing others, that we are being influenced by, by others. So we do have to be careful. Uh, but you can't just avoid unbelievers. That, that's, that's not practical, one. Uh, but two, it's not biblical. It's not biblical. Jesus' prayer right before he's, again, in John chapter 17, right before he's about to be arrested and tried and crucified and all this, he prays for his immediate disciples. Uh, and he says, my prayer for them is not that you would just take them out of the world, Father. I'm not praying that, you know, just because they know you now, now, boom, done, take them out of the world. No, he says, my prayer is that you would protect them from the evil one, from Satan. My prayer is that, you know, just because, or just as I was sent into this world, I am sending them into this world. So in the same way, just as we are not of this world, but being sent into this world, or in the same way Jesus was not of this world, but sent into this world, so are we. We are not of this world, but we are to be sent into it. 
Yes, we are different. Yes, we are separate. But remember as what Paul was, as Paul was kind of teaching us, what is this gospel message that saves us and satisfies us? He says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, don't forget, you were once alienated from God. You were once far from God. You were once enemies of God because of your evil behavior. You were once far from him. But what? But God. But his grace. So we can't look at, at someone who doesn't believe in Christ and think, I'm so much better and I'm so much this and I'm so much that. You were in the same boat. You were literally in the exact same position. You were once far from God. You were once alienated from God. You were once an enemy of God. And it wasn't by your works that you are now you know, close to God. It was by his grace. So rather than being able to look at someone who doesn't believe and, and turn our nose up to them and, and say, like, you know, I'm so much better, no, we should be able to empathize. We should be able to say, I, I know exactly what that was like. Because I was in that position too. So, again then, how are we supposed to live? You know, how are we supposed to, to, to live amongst unbelievers? What is our proper response to this you know, in light of who God is, his view of the church, and his gospel message that saves and satisfies? Um, according to this passage here, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, be wise. He says, walk in wisdom. Okay? That's Paul's response to that question. So that's exactly what we're going to look at. Um, we're going to look at this passage today, and we're also going to look at it again next week. Um, what we'll look at today, just what is wisdom? Which it's, it's, there's going to be a lot that can be said about this, so this is obviously a very simplified view of this. Uh, what is wisdom? And then number two, what are just some characteristics of wisdom? And then what, that's going to kind of set us up for next week um, to answer the question, okay, so then what does walking in wisdom look like? When Paul says be wise, or in other translations, walk in wisdom, what does that actually look like? Uh, so we'll look at that next week. So uh, to help us understand uh, Paul's call to, to walk in wisdom, uh, we're actually going to read from uh, what's called the wisdom literature. If you ever hear anything like that, if you ever hear somebody talk about the, the wisdom literature of the Bible, it's usually referring to five books in the Bible, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs. And those books just deal with, like, how does life operate? How does life work? Uh, specifically, what we're going to read from today is the book of Proverbs. And so if we all turn to Proverbs... Proverbs chapter 8. We're going to read uh, all of Proverbs chapter 8 and then Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. Uh, we'll actually start from Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 and then we'll go back to chapter 8. <clears throat> It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is under understanding. And jump to chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not wisdom, or does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak out what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. 
To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. By me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern, and nobles, all who rule the earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there, was, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon of the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. So, what we have here in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapters 8, chapters 9, and a couple other places as well, is uh, this person, uh, so wisdom is being personified as this woman who is calling out, who is crying out to these people, basically just saying, listen to what I have to say. I have something so good for you. Take what I have. Right? And so um, what we're going to look at is this, this quote-unquote person of wisdom. Uh, and again, we're going to answer just two questions today. What is wisdom? What are some characteristics of wisdom. So one, what is wisdom? Back in Paul's letter, uh, when he says, be wise or walk in wisdom, the Greek word that's used there, uh, does anybody know it by, by any chance? What is wisdom in Greek? Sophia. Sophia, that's correct. Popular name, Sophia. So Sophia means wisdom. Um, it can mean wisdom, insight, skill, whether human or divine, uh, or intelligence. But of course, in this case, what Paul is talking about, godly wisdom, or what, and what we're looking at here, this godly wisdom, this godly insight. And chapter 9, verse 10, tells us what wisdom is. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. So if the fear of the Lord is this beginning of wisdom, if that's kind of where wisdom comes from, okay, so then what is the fear, the fear of the Lord? I want you to, to try and imagine, imagine this. You're in the presence of the Lord. Okay, you're in the presence of the Lord. You're in the presence of absolute power. You're in the presence of absolute holiness. You're in the presence of absolute perfection. You're in the presence of absolute greatness, absolute wisdom, absolute goodness, absolute justice, absolute love, 
you're in the presence of this kind of person. When you begin to see the kind of person, the, 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 like this, this God that you're in the presence of, when you begin to see him for who he really is, that does something to you. Absolute power, absolute justice, absolute goodness, absolute love, absolute perfection. You begin to see just how big this God is and how small you really are. This, when you begin to see that, it, it changes you. It does something to you. It affects you. I remember going, um, when, I was, when I was really young, uh, my dad used to get tickets to Suns games, uh, you know, from his work. And so the same team that you, you know, that you get to watch on TV, you're now getting to see, to see live. And even sometimes when, when our tickets would be like way at the, at the top of the, of the stadium, I would still, I remember being super impressed and just super amazed at like, I can tell exactly who is who because they're so massive. They're so big. And so like, I can still tell how big they are, even from like sitting way at the top. And there was a couple times where you get to sit a little closer or where you get to see them up front. And like, and as a little kid, when you're, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, these people are literally, these are Nephilim. Like, these are huge. They're massive people. There was one time when a couple of friends of mine, uh, we were riding our bikes to a local, there's a little grocery store that was like just a few minutes away, you know, from our houses. So we'd ride our bikes there. We'd always do this. We'd ride our bikes there. You drop your bikes off and then you run into the store. You grab your chips and drinks and, you know, whatever, right? And one time when we were in there, there was a player by the name of Dan Marley who was, who happened to be at the store. He's just, you know, walking around, you know, just shopping. And again, as a kid, when you see, I, we, we all knew exactly who it was. Uh, but some of our reactions were different. My reaction was, well, first of all, we all were like, Jesus. Like, this, this is, you know, I, I think Dan Marley is probably like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, something like that. So, yeah, yes, he's tall, but like when you're, again, when you're 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, however old we were, this person is, might as well be 20 feet tall. And that was our first reaction. Just like, dang, he's, he's huge. And then a couple of us, like, we wanted to run up to him and just be like, what's up? How are you doing? Like, Dan, his, his nickname was Thunder Dan. That's what everybody called him. Thunder Dan, what's up? Like, we just be like, how are you? You know, we want to get an autograph. Other, the, a couple of our people in our group, their reaction was, no, 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 we can't bother him. We can't talk to him. No, 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 no. Like, we, we got to stay back. We got to. But all of us were in absolute amazement that Dan Marley is right here in the store. And so we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we get an autograph? How can we this? We're just, it's just amazement. And all we could squeeze out was this, what's up, Dan? And then he just gave us one of these and then he left. Because we were too scared to, to approach him. We were in absolute shock, absolute amazement, absolute wonder of another human being. He's imperfect. He bleeds just like I do. He's capable of sin just like I am. He has fallen short of the glory of God just like I have. And yet in his presence, when you begin to look at someone that, like, I've seen this person on TV, I know his stats, he's, he's a great player, like, everyone in Phoenix loves him, all of it, we're in amazement, we're in wonder. He's imperfect. When you stand in the presence of God, when you begin to recognize whose presence you're in, oh, the, the, the kind of wonder that we ought to have, the kind of amazement that we ought to have, the kind of this God is huge. This same God who could literally wipe me out with, with a little flick of his pinky, he could wipe out this entire universe if he wanted to. And yet the same God who has this kind of power is the same God who sent his son to die for me, who loves me with a love that I can't fathom, I can't comprehend. When you begin to recognize the presence of Lord, of, of, of who he is, 
there is a, a fear, there is a wonder, there is an amazement, there is a reverence for him. That's the fear of the Lord. To have a reverence for him. To begin to recognize his power. To begin to recognize his love. To begin to recognize just how big this God is. And that wonder that comes. And this kind of God, he's not just God out there. We, we, We talk about again and again and again. All throughout the Bible, the Bible calls, acknowledge him, acknowledge him, acknowledge him. We, we, I've been praying this verse almost, uh, I don't know for how long now, every time we start prayer. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. He's not just God out there. He's not just almighty and all-powerful out there. He is God here. And we're to acknowledge him. Proverbs chapter 3, verse, verse 5 and 6. We, we all know, this, especially around graduation time, we always hear, this. trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways... A lot of people know it as submit to him. A lot of translations will say acknowledge. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Not just in some of your ways, in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. There's this constant call to acknowledge the presence of the Lord. To turn your focus onto him. To remember that wherever you go, he is there. That there isn't a moment where God is no longer God. There isn't a moment where, where again, where we're not in this relationship with him. There isn't that moment. And so what we are called to do is to constantly acknowledge that this kind of God is with me. And when I live like that, constantly remembering, oh, this God, you're still with me. God, you're here. God, you're with me. God, you were, wow, this kind of God, this kind of God loves me. This kind of God is with me. This kind of God is walking with me. Not just when I'm at church. Not just when, you know, I'm at home. When I go to work, when I go to the store when I go to the gym, when I'm just out going on a walk, when it's just, this God is with me. When I constantly acknowledge that this kind of God is with me, the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. To constantly acknowledge His presence while you're recognizing whose presence you're in. And the Proverbs tell us, when you live like that, where you're constantly acknowledging that you're in the presence of an almighty king, An all-loving king, wisdom is birthed from that place. This is where wisdom comes from. To live in such a manner, he says, this is the beginning of wisdom. When you live knowing that God is with you, that this kind of God is with you, that this kind of God, he's never left you nor forsaken you, that this kind of God is watching, this kind of God is, is, is watching over you and, and, and taking care of you and guiding you and speaking to you, correcting you, shepherding you, providing for you, when this kind of God is with you. And I begin to acknowledge that in all that I do, wisdom is birthed from there. So wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's number one. Number two. Okay, so then what are some characteristics then of this wisdom? What are some characteristics of wisdom? A couple of things that we'll look at. <clears throat> number one, when we're thinking of what are some characteristics of this wisdom, number one, it's humbling. It's humbling. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 5. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Verses, uh, 
verse 34 says, Blessed are those who listen to me. When you are standing in the same room as God, one of the things you should immediately recognize is, oh yeah, maybe I don't have it all together. Oh, maybe I'm, mm, I'm not all that. I don't have, you know, I don't know everything. I, I, I'm not perfect, you know, by myself, you know, with my own works. That maybe my way isn't exactly the best way. You know, I'm not the biggest, baddest person in the room anymore. You know, if, if we're, you know, on Sundays, sometimes after church, we'll be playing soccer. Right? And so if, when we all go there to play soccer, of course, there's a lot, how much trash talk is going on there? Everybody's, everybody's talking trash. Everybody's talking trash to one another. Everybody's talking, man, you suck, man, you this, man, you that, man, you this, blah, 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 blah. Now, if a pro soccer player, forget a pro soccer, if Lionel Messi were to show up on the field, I promise you all of that trash talking will, will stop immediately. Why? Because you're in the, you know, like, I'm in the presence of someone who knows what they're doing. So I'm not going to continue. I recognize my lack when somebody who is obviously much better than me, much better than everybody else that's there, you recognize your lack. You recognize, I'm not it. I'm not that nice. I'm definitely not that nice. I already know I'm not that nice. But then when somebody else like that comes up, I know I'm not that nice. When you're in the presence of God, this isn't, in, and I'm not talking about it in a way that's like demeaning, like, oh, I'm trash, and oh, I'm this, and I'm that. Because God is, that's, this is not what God is saying. But there is this recognition, there is this humility that comes when you are standing in the presence of God. Like, listen to, to wisdom's call. Wisdom's call is saying, you who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your heart on this. She's calling you simple. She's calling you foolish. When you're in the presence of God, you should recognize something. Ah, oh, yeah, okay, God, I think you know a little bit more than I do. I think my way compared to yours is foolish. My way compared to yours is simple. It's basic. I don't have it all together. But you do. I begin to recognize my need for God's wisdom. When, when I begin to gain wisdom, one of those things is I begin to recognize my lack of it, my need for it. You know, wisdom says, blessed are those who listen to me. Right? Are, we, are we those who, you know, want to listen to what wisdom has to say? Are we those that we begin to recognize that, you know what, I don't have everything together, that I am in need of God's wisdom, that I am in need of godly counsel, I am in need? Am I humble enough to, to, to admit that? Or am I... Someone who goes their own way. You know, blessed is the one who listens to it. Do I say, you know what, God? I'm hearing what you have to say, but I think I got this. I think I know what I'm doing. I think I can take care of this. I think I'm God, is what we're saying. Wisdom says, those who find me find life, but those who fail to find me harm themselves and love death. So there's something humbling about wisdom about gaining wisdom because you begin to recognize not only your lack, you begin to recognize your need for it, you begin to recognize, God, your way is better than mine. It's humbling. In a good way. It's humbling. So number one, it's humbling. Number two, it's valuable. Verse 10 and 11 says, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Verse 19 says, My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. So it's, it's valuable. There, and we see this all throughout the Proverbs, actually. There's this constant, like, you know, gain with, every, with everything that you have, gain wisdom. With all that you have, look for knowledge. Like, gain wisdom. It is so much more valuable than, uh, than all the silver and all the precious metals and all the gold and all this and that. And the other. Wisdom is far greater in value than this. How is wisdom valuable? How is wisdom valuable? One, because it's eternal. Wisdom has been there before time. God's wisdom, because God's wisdom, of course, is with him, it's been there before time. And it's been able to stand time. So regardless of season, regardless of which country, regardless of empire, regardless of this, that, and the other, it doesn't matter. God's wisdom stands. It's eternal. There's always something to be said, you know, when you're able to learn from someone who's older than you. You know, when you're able to learn from someone who's kind of, quote, unquote, been there, done that. Right? There, there's, there's something that comes with it. There's, there's, there's wisdom in that, being able to, to humble yourself and, and learn from those who are, who are older than us, you know, Again, who've been there, done that. How do you calculate the value of gaining wisdom that's been there for eternity? Not just someone who's just slightly older than you. I'm talking about wisdom that's been there for eternity. There's, that's, you can't calculate that value. Not only is it eternal, but it's life-giving. How is it that wisdom can be more precious than, than, than the silver and the gold and the rubies and the precious metals and this, that, and the other? Because it gives life. There is no treasure on this world, in this earth, that's going to last. Eventually, all the gold and all the rubies and all the silver and this and the other, it will perish. But God's wisdom remains. And it says that those who find me, in verse 35, for those who find me, find life. God's wisdom will lead to the source, Him. And Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So God's wisdom leads to himself. But when we choose to rebuke God's wisdom, when we choose to reject God's wisdom, that will not lead to God, that will lead away from him, which is death. So God's wisdom is life-giving. How do you calculate the value of that? It's so valuable. To gain godly wisdom is to gain life. Because it points to him. So, characteristics of wisdom. It's humbling, one. Two, it's valuable. Three, it's available. It's available. Again, listen to wisdom's call, starting from verse two. At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. The picture that's being painted here is that this, this person of wisdom, Lady Wisdom, is now standing at a place where it is most busy. At the city gates, this is where all the businesses were. This is where courts were held. This is where all the transactions are happening. This is where people are running in and out of the city. Right? So this is the busiest place of the city. And so this person of wisdom is standing at this high place that overlooks this, and she is crying out. She is calling out to these people, listen to what I have to say. I have something for you something that is eternal, something that is valuable, something that is life-giving. I have this for you. It's available. She's crying out. She's calling. This wisdom 
is available to us. This kind of godly insight into his character, godly insight into his ways, godly insight into his, into his word, godly insight into how we are to live is available to us. We would think something so precious and so valuable, we don't share those kinds of things. We keep those things. It's, it's simple economics, right? If, if there's too much supply of something, oh, it's not valuable anymore. Yet here is wisdom saying, I'm trying to give it all. And yet it's the most precious thing. It's, it's more valuable than any silver and gold and, and, and precious rubies and this, that, and the other. Wisdom is crying out, I'm trying to give this to you. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask, and God will give it to you. And God who gives generously and without finding fault will give it to you. So this godly wisdom that is so valuable, that is eternal, that is life-giving, that is so precious and all this, that, it, that it's, it's humbling in nature, all of this, God says, I am here to give it. It's available. It, it's not, you know, like, that verse, I love that verse in James chapter 1, verse 5. That is a promise I, I constantly stand on. Lord, you said, this is your word. You said, if any of you lacks wisdom, all we have to do is ask. And God, and it gives us that insight into his character, and God who gives generously and without finding fault will give it to you. He gives it generously and without finding fault, without reproach. Someone who gives something with reproach, is like, uh, uh, this is the example I always think of. You know, if you're in, if you're in class, and you, let's say your, your teacher or professor is teaching something, and it's making absolutely no sense. You're, you're not seeing the connection. And you ask a question, you're like, you know, a prof, like, this is not making any kind of sense. Can you explain that? And your professor is literally like, oh, my God. How dumb are you? Do you still not get it? How many times do I have to explain this to you? You idiot. And then gives you the answer. That's giving with reproach. And are you going to ask a question again? Absolutely not. You will never ask again. You learned your lesson right there. God gives wisdom without reproach. He gives generously and without finding fault. When I come to him and I admit, Lord, I'm, I'm not getting it. I'm not understanding. I don't know what to do here. I need your help. I need your wisdom. God gives it generously and generously and generously and generously. This wisdom that God has, it's available to you and I. It's available. So, of course, there is so much more that can be said about what is wisdom and characteristics of wisdom. But that, I think, is going to be a good setup for, for next week when we're talking about, okay, this life with unbelievers. When Paul says, be wise, walk in wisdom, this, I think, is a good setup for that. So uh, we're going to stop there, but we're going to take a few minutes to pray. Uh, because this wisdom that we are called to walk in obviously is not just in, in reference to people who don't believe the same things that we do. People who, who don't know Christ. That, that's not the only thing that we're supposed to walk in wisdom or in an area of our life where we're supposed to walk in wisdom. That should be in all areas of our life. And I'm sure that there is something, at least one thing in every person here where we have a question, Lord, I could really use your guidance. I could really use your wisdom. I could really use your direction. I really need some godly insight into Whatever. So we're going to take a moment to pray. To ask him, Lord, 
I humbly come before you. I recognize my need for your wisdom. I recognize my need for this. I, I, I want to be here just as Lady Wisdom is calling out. Lord, I, I, let me be counted as a person who has heard that call. Let me be counted as a person that says, I, I hear you, God. I'm humble enough to, to recognize my lack. I want your life-giving wisdom. I want your life-giving insight. I need your direction because I want my life to honor you. I want my life to show this reverence. I want my life to show that, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. That I tried to go my own way, I tried to do my own thing, and it just doesn't work. And so, Lord, help me. Give me your wisdom. Teach me how you would do this. Let my life reflect this relationship with you. Let my life reflect your thoughts and your ways because your thoughts and your ways are higher than mine. They're better than mine. It leads to life. My way doesn't. I tried my way. It doesn't work. So we're going to take a few minutes to pray that and say, Lord, whatever it is that you guys are praying for, whatever it is that you want insight in, uh, into, um, Lord, we need you. We need your wisdom. <laughs>